Lands of M, 104.4. The first radio. It was a box with a cat's whiskers. Well, it's a little glass tube on top of the box. And to get the station, you had to twiddle a wire on this end here against a crystal in there. And that would change the station. But there was always a fight because everybody wanted... There was only one set of earphones. Welcome to the bike show. And for this episode of the show, I've come out to the foothills of the Black Mountains to meet a man who lives here, Rob Penn, author of a terrific book called It's All About the Bike, out last year and this year in paperback. And we'll be talking about that, and we'll be talking about his life in cycling. And you could probably hear now a lot of wind. Uh, yeah, it's the full wind today. It's roaring out of the northwest. Um, not a great day for riding a bike, unless, of course, you're travelling eastwards. It's really poor. We've got a combination of high winds and very poor visibility. So uh, we wouldn't, if we did go for a ride, which was the original intention, I do have my bike here... Um, we wouldn't get to see much and you would hear a lot of wind noise in the microphone. Yeah, I could say welcome to summer in Wales, but that would, be, that would not put me in good stead with the uh, local tourist board. No, it's absolutely roaring. You can see it's blowing over my wood stacks over here. Let's take a step inside into the, into the bike shed. A disappointed dog has just been put into the house. Yeah. Did she think it was time for her to go for a walk? Yeah, no, I'm afraid it's a spaniel, so they're not really too bothered about, about whether it's wet or dry. But um, no, so disappointment on the spaniel's face. Uh, yes. Oh, so here we are inside. Yeah. Lovely. Well, this is an old barn, is it? It's an old buyer. It would have been a cow oh. buyer uh, where they would have put the, uh, the, the, the sort of livestock to feed. And uh, there used to be all the sort of metal bars here, which would have divided up the pens for the livestock, but we've taken those out to make a bit more room for the bicycles. And the kind of low-beamed ceiling here? Yeah, a bit of woodworm in there, I'm afraid, you can see, but it's holding up so far. Well, you don't have any wooden-framed bicycles by the looks of things, so they'll be safe from the woodworm. Uh, no, yeah, no, exactly, no, no wooden-framed bicycles. It'd be nice to have one, though, or, wouldn't or it? Or a pair of, pair of rims. Yeah, I know, they're coming back in, aren't they? <laughs> wooden rims. I, don't feel, I, think I feel slightly anxious going down a hill at... 70 kilometres an hour on a wooden rim. But, um, yeah, they're making them again. It's nice to see. Well, as well as being um, a cycling author and journalist, you are one of a, a small but growing, yet nonetheless elite crowd of people who have cycled themselves the circumference of the globe. Uh, yeah. When was that? So I got back um, 10 years ago. And uh, I was away for three years and I stopped for, you know, periods in that, stopped for Sydney, in Sydney for six months in the middle of that. But uh, I was away for three years and cycled about, you know, 24,500 miles, which is the distance of the equator. So I sort of say it's around the world. So what was your route? The route, I started in the US. Um, I went across the US from New York to Portland and then down to LA. And then I flew to New Zealand, went around New Zealand, uh, flew to Sydney in Australia, I went up the east coast of Australia, across the top to Darwin, got a boat to Indonesia, went through the main archipelago, 
um, boat to Palencia in Malaysia, up to Thailand, got a yacht to Sri Lanka, around Sri Lanka, got to India, up through the middle of India, and then Pakistan, uh, Western China, through all the stands, you know, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, into Iran, uh, across Iran, uh, into Turkey, down to Syria, and then onto the Med, and then round the sort of Mediterranean coast, um, back through Turkey to Istanbul, and then across the Balkans and uh, back over the Alps and home. So it said that there are at any one time around about, at the moment, around about two or three hundred people cycling around the world. What makes people want to do a journey like that? Uh, I don't know. What made, what made you want to do a journey like that? Um, I kind of made it up as I, I mean, I didn't really set out to cycle around the world. You know, I set out to, to go a long way on a bicycle and I wasn't really sure where I was going. But you get um, wheels within wheels sort of form inside you after a while. And there was, you know, you, it, the journey creates its own momentum. It's very, very difficult to stop. And if you ask anyone who's ridden for that long, they'll say the same thing. It's very difficult to stop, actually, uh, when it comes to it. Um, and quite often on that journey, I get to a very beautiful place or a place where I thought there were job opportunities. And you think, oh, this is good. You know, I'll stop here. I'll work and I'll live and, you know, I'll be very happy here. And, you know, really no sooner than you've unpacked your bags, you feel these wheels within you again, creating this sort of motion. And so you, you know, almost subconsciously you're packing your bags up again and pointing your bike back up the road. So I've, I found it very, very difficult to stop. And, uh, you know, I don't know, a bit like Forrest Gump, you know, I just kept on running, you know. Um, when I left, I was taking a proper break. You know, I was 27. I'd worked, had a career as a lawyer. And I knew that I wanted to do something different and I didn't quite know what that was. So, you know, and I'd saved money and, you know, I knew travel was cheap um, and it certainly was back then. And I thought, well, I'll go and I'll just see where it gets me. There's the forks, which put up with some fairly heavy beating. Uh, it was the biggest stack I had was in India riding from Delhi to Amritsar. And one afternoon I was feeling rather weary and decided to ride in the slipstream of a tractor and uh, going downhill across the Punjab, uh, we I rode into a pothole the size of a hot tub and bent two tubes on the frame. I bent the top tube and the down tube. Um, but remarkably, those forks held up, uh, as did the wheel, which is a great testament to the, to the wheel builder. So who, who, who built the bike? So the bike was made by Chaz Roberts in uh, Croydon. And uh, it was made from a, an alloy called Nivacrome, you know, obviously handmade and uh, made to fit me. And the wheels were built by his then sort of established wheel builder, Harry Rowlands, who I think is still making wheels for Chaz Roberts. He must be quite an old man now, but I think he's still in business, you know. And what's the, this is an interesting bit. The, the, we've, got, yeah. we've got the frame out here, and yeah. at the meeting of the uh, top tube and the uh, head tube, um, there is a, a kind of... An enormous sheet of pig iron welded yeah. in there. Well, so that, that's presumably not from Chaz Roberts's uh, hand. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. He'd be horrified. I've never taken uh, the frame back to show him, actually. He'd be horrified to see it. But that is uh, a result, a direct result of the accident, which I just mentioned. So the frame was straightened and fortified by a very good bike mechanic in Amritsar. And then it began to go again because the creases in the tubes were, had done so much damage to the strength uh, of the tubes, of the frame, that um, it was welded again in uh, Gilgit in Pakistan and in Tashkent in Uzbekistan. And then finally in Meshad 
in Iran, I really thought the bike was about to collapse and a welder there just welded this enormous piece of uh, steel into the front of the V at the front of the triangle. And that gave the bike, you know, the strength that it needed to get home. It also meant that the steering was so heavily impaired that nobody else could ride the bike. Um, and when I got back, you know, people would say to me, oh, look at that bike that's been around the world. Can I have a go on it? And I go, yeah, yeah, of course, jump on. And they'd jump on and ride straight into a brick wall. So that's one of those bikes that you could have taken to a fairground and said, if you can ride, you know, <laughs> 20 yards, you get 20 quid or whatever it is. Or the bicycle, you know, the ones that steer the wrong way. Yeah, it was pretty much one of those. It was unrideable, but because I'd become so micro-adjusted to it, I was, I could, I could. You I could had become had the man machine. <laughs> yeah, you and this piece of pig iron <laughs> yeah, here. Well, yeah. pig iron and nivacrome. You keep this obviously for well, sentimental yeah, reasons. Yeah, keep it for sentimental reasons. But of course, there's nothing wrong with the rear triangle, and um, I keep meaning to take it back to Chaz Roberts and ask him to put a new front triangle on it which i'm sure he'd do um but as you can see it you know it's taken quite a bashing in fact you can still see the line of the crease there so rob if if cycling wasn't in your blood before you uh went off around the world it must have become ingrained in your blood when you came back i mean yeah, were, you, were, you, yeah. were you always a cyclist was cycling an obvious thing for you to do for a journey of this kind or would you think well I could could go for a sailing trip or a backpacking trip or did it have to be the bicycle well I'd, I'd always been on a bike so I grew up in the Isle of Man and I grew up in a rural location and from a very early age you know my parents said look we're not going to be a taxi if you want to get anywhere it's by bicycle so my brother and I just rode bikes you know and we rode not very good bikes but we rode them all the time if we want to go and see our mates you know it was two or three miles down the road so you went by bicycle and and then I got to university and, you know, riding a bike at university seemed to be the most obvious thing. You know, it was, a, you know, it was cheap. Um, and then when I moved to London, you know, to work, I commuted by bike. It seemed to be an obvious thing to do as well. Better than traveling by public transport at any rate. And, and then so when I decided to go, you know, the bike was, yeah, it was, it, was, it, it, it was very much the only option for me. I had traveled by bike before. I rode a bike across Western China and Northern Pakistan uh, mountain bike, you know, in the sort of early days of the mountain bike and had an epic adventure that time. So I knew the sort of pleasures that travelling by bike offers, you know. And if you think that the, the you know, the greatest things that can be obtained by travel are, you know, trust of the people that you're among, uh, which leads to, to friendship and understanding uh, and also empathy, yeah, then... You know, but the bicycle's the best way to achieve those. And so I knew that. So for me, it would have always been by bike. You know, I'd never go around the world on a motorbike because I think that's a, you know, a, a mode of transportation which alienates local people immediately, whereas a bicycle doesn't. Most people in the world ride bicycles. You know, they understand what you're doing. And they know you can't rob them and get away. Can you think of a time like, I call it a sort of loss of cycling innocence because I think in my teenage years, I saw the bicycle, just any old bicycle, I will ride this bicycle and take it on my adventures. It's the way that I'll get somewhere to a time when I, I suddenly started thinking about components and <laughs> have I got the right ones or, or is this bike the right bike for this kind of journey? Should I be having 28 uh, uh, millimeter tires or, or, or 25 millimeter tires or should, should I uh, be having a triple chain set or a double chain set? You know, that, that kind of, you're learning more about the machine and in a way learning is a good thing, yeah. but you're then leading yourself down a crooked road to sort of self-torture 
and always worrying about the next upgrade and what and, and that your current bike might not be up to the job when of course any bike is up to the job if that you will adapt yourself to what you've got at your hands. Do you remember? Do you remember? Does that sort of ring yeah, a bell? No, or not? it does ring a bell. Uh, you know, riding mountain bikes in the early 1990s. I, it was the first time I began to fetishize about what other people were riding. And, you know, so I, you know, I raced a bit and, and, and also, you know, took myself off to the Lake District and the, here in the Brecon Beacons. And, you know, you get somewhere, you get to a car park and a guy would be pulling a bike off his car and you're like, that's the bike I want so that's why I really started coveting other people's bikes for the first time you know prior to that I hadn't had a bike which was memorable you know apart from the rally tomahawk I had when I was you know uh, a wee kid but none of the bikes have been been particularly memorable and then I, I yeah, that was really for the first time when I started thinking well I can invest an awful lot of wasted time and indeed money that I don't have in the machine and are you familiar with that feeling of torturing yourself as you ride up a hill and obviously you're torturing yourself physically riding up the hill but you're also torturing yourself mentally riding up the hill because your companion next to you has got some superior bit of kit and you're thinking well perhaps I'd be surging ahead if I, if I was <laughs> equally well equipped as this chap here I must go home and oh dear I shouldn't have got that 105 group set I should have got the Altegra yeah I know I know that feeling it's it is uh it's something which lives with me now, I'm afraid. It's, <laughs> I think I've probably got it for the, rest, for the rest of my days. It certainly was a helpful thing to have setting out to write the book, um, It's All About the Bike, because that is essentially the way I read it and I, read, I tremendously enjoyed it. A, a history of the bicycle, a history of your life in cycling, but also getting quite geeky into the bits. And you, had to, you, you, you set out to build your perfect bike. I realised a few years ago that I was in the middle of, you know, a lifelong love affair with the bicycle and that none of the bikes in my shed then, you know, really even hinted at that. Um, I, you know, I realised I wanted a bike that was, in a sense, a bit more than a utilitarian object, which all my bikes, you know, my then bikes were. And I wanted to get something which was a talismanic machine, in a sense, a machine that showed my appreciation of the tradition, law and beauty of bicycles. Um, and, you know, I wanted a bike that I wanted a bike. I wanted to invest in a bike, the bike that I'm going to grow old with. And I think, you know, you, you, you don't want to do that when you're 22. But, you know, at my age at 43, it's like suddenly that that's something which makes quite good sense. You know, so I'm going to ride a bike for another 30 years, maybe more. Um, and you think, well, now I can buy the bike that I am going to have for the rest of my days. Um, and obviously, you know, I'll, I'd like to add to my collection in due course, but for, that is one of the bikes that's going to stay with me forever. And so for that, you know, you invest an awful lot of time. You know, I wanted, I realised, you know, I didn't want technology. Uh, I wanted craftsmanship. Uh, I wanted a bike that was handmade as much as that's possible these days. I wanted a bike that had, had a backstory. So, you know, I wanted components and component makers and um, frame builders uh, and wheel builders that had a backstory that you know a story that meant something to me uh, and that I could relate to well let's take a step closer to the yeah. bicycles and keep our eye away from the talisman okay. uh, just just now. now and and you can talk us through some of, some of the other bicycles and the and, and the and the times that you've had with them and the things that have that you like about them uh, okay, okay. So, so this is a very very old specialized rock hopper um from the late 1980s rock hopper comp it was once quite a good bike i rode that 
It's not my first uh, mountain bike, but it's one of the very early ones. It's in pretty shoddy condition now, um, and my wife rides it a lot. This is an old. And that's got yeah. I mean, is that, is that mud or is that rust? That's a bit of rust on the end there, I'm afraid. Yeah, okay. yeah. It is Wales after all. It's quite difficult to keep the rust off them here, um, which is why a couple of the bikes live inside in the winter. Um, so from the early days of mountain biking, yeah. we, we take a, a, a few decades step back in history. Yeah. So that's a, uh, my grandfather's BSA, which he rode in the Second World War. And um, this one here. Yeah, that right, one there. Terrific. Look at the yeah. lamp on that. I know, isn't it lovely? Um, and that is, you know, only recently my uncle gave gave me that very recently, uh, and I'm going to try and restore that. So that would have been a pretty good bicycle in its day, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was a very good bicycle in its day. I think kind of roadster. Yeah, exactly a classic, a classic, you know, uh, roadster, you know, made in the Midlands. And, we, and we, we sort of tend to think about these bikes now as something genteel that you would just ride around a few miles or pick up some you know groceries and things like that and then it's been reborn as the kind of the Pashley governor i suppose yes. is the most recent iteration but these bikes would have been ridden long distances that that, that was a truly utilitarian vehicle they, they, you know they ate miles you know they flew those bikes they're very fast uh you know that the hard yakka going uphill on them but when you get on the flat you know, with a light wind behind you, you motor on them. You know, they're very, very efficient, very fast. I mean, this speaks again to the idea that you shouldn't worry about the bike that you've got. It's about the journey that you're on, in a way. I think that's very true. No, you know, gosh, we, you know, we're, we, 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 we are incredibly adaptable, you know, human beings. As human beings, we are very, very adaptable. We've slightly forgotten the fact that, you know, there's almost, you can get on almost anything and bang 100 miles out if you really need to. Uh, and we've become slightly fetishised about, you know, getting the bike that's really the right one for the job. OK, so moving on. Yeah. Um, okay, now, hanging from the hooks on the ceiling, yes. we have uh, the uh, the road bike category. Yes. So there's various ones here. There's a Villa Mortirolo, uh, which is a very, very nice bike. Um, and I sort of it's probably now become my beater. But it's a it's a it's a really lovely machine that um, made of. Uh, plastic Car carbon yeah i mean yeah. carbon sorry <laughs> that's a carbon bike uh and you know it's quite difficult to avoid them these days but it works very well it's a very nice bike to ride on all day and then there this is a specialized roubaix uh expert which is you know again a very very nice carbon frame bike very clean very clean no no yeah no i try to keep the good ones clean here we've got the bike in the yeah. middle um, the bike that features on the front cover of of your book. Does, is it on the front cover of the paperback? Uh, no, it's not on the front cover of the paperback. They changed the cover of the paperback, which means it's actually not a photograph of the bike anywhere in the book, which is quite annoying. Well, but Yeah, there ought yeah. to be a key so oh, no. people can look oh, at no, the different funny, bits. It's funny, isn't it? Yeah. Well, let's, you know... Shall I put it down? Bring it down, yeah. yeah. There we are. So when you... This is... this is Oh, give that a nice twist. That's yeah. a lovely sound, isn't it? Okay. Very astute listeners will be able to identify the... Uh, the the hub there but we'll come to that um what's the first thing that you you started to think about when you when you were putting this bike together in your imagination well so i mean i'd you know imagined what the bike might be the dream bike might be for 20 years and as i mentioned 20 years ago i probably spent more time on a mountain bike than i did on a road bike um so 20 years ago it would have been you know the dream bike would have been a mountain bike and now you are know, over a period that period of time over two decades you know you're dream bike mutates and when the sort of project i decided that the project was i was going to green light the project um 
I sort of looked through all of the different imaginings in my head, uh, all, all of the different imaginings of this dream bike and tried to find one thing which was consistent in them all, which might lead me to know where to begin with the project. And that one thing was that, you know, in every in previous imagining, the dream bike, the frame of it, the diamond sole of the machine had been made by a British frame builder and it, it had been made from steel. So that that's where I started. It's the latest incarnation of, there's only, well, there are three companies probably making steel for the for this kind of bicycle reynolds true temper and um columbus columbus yeah how did you choose between the, well, the top of the range on each of those ones yeah, i mean reynolds I, has obviously got the you know the spitfire history yeah, and the rest of it and there's yeah. a strong att- attraction for a mildly patriotic british soul to I, reynolds I, I, isn't I, there? I, th- I think so i mean for me it was it was you know the, the, it was a no-brainer actually and that's partly because yes the, the heritage of the company you know you've got the spitfire and 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 Alfred Millard Reynolds, you know, who's the first scion of the of the of the sort of Reynolds dynasty, he you know invented you know double butted tubing and you know in the eighteen nineties and you know they've been they've you know Reynolds really been the part of the backbone of the bicycle in this country for that you know ever since and so it, yeah it was always going to be Reynolds. I mean I love the Italians but you know you know it had to be Reynolds and stainless steel. Um, obviously this will not go the way of the uh, exactly. specialised rock hopper comp <laughs> with the uh, the rusty uh, the rusty front end because this is stainless yeah yeah uh, which, which is you know it's a it's a wonderful um, material this 953 so it's very very light it's very strong and it's stainless you know and it has I mean, it just has fantastic ride qualities as well um, and I'm always slightly nervous to you know, to talk about the ride qualities of one material over another, because I think, you know, as, as humans, you know, we're not particularly um, accurate at, you know, feeling uh, some of these things. You know, you read a lot of nonsense in the cycling press. Yeah, and I think it's it. mostly in the tyres, actually. Exactly, it's tyre pressure, you know. I mean, what sort of tyre pressure do you ride at? And also, is your saddle any good? I mean, these things are, you know, fundamental, rather more fundamental than the ride qualities of the material itself. So you've chosen Reynolds, you want the best material that Reynolds are currently making for building bicycles and that will inevitably narrow down your choices of frame builder because there aren't that many frame builders building with 953 are there it's very difficult to work with you know it's so light uh, and the tubes are so thin that you can make a mess of them very very easily and so I think Reynolds run I think I'm right in saying Reynolds run an accreditation scheme so if you're a frame builder and you want to use you want to build using 953 you have to be accredited by Reynolds I think that's still the case and so yeah you're right there aren't that many uh, but you know there are still enough to make a decision difficult because the ones who are building with it are probably by nature very good frame builders so so who was in the picture at this point well i had a very lovely journey up and down britain looking at you know visiting as many as i could you know i went to argos cycles in bristol uh bob jackson in leeds uh vernon barker just south of sheffield i went up to see pennine cycles in bradford mercian um i went to see charles roberts in london and you know a few others and you know they all showed great passion for what they're doing they all showed a connection to british artisanship which goes back to the beginning of you know bicycle manufacturing in in britain you know rally you have to remember started as a small frame builders making three frames a week in nottingham in 1888 you know so there's a lovely 
connection there. Um, and choosing one out of all that lot was very, very difficult. It was very, very difficult. And, you know, in the end, I did make a decision uh, and I went with Brian Rourke. There were a number of reasons that I used to back that up. You know, the road racing bicycle is their speciality. You know, they do it extremely well. Um, I was particularly attracted to them because Brian Rourke, actually his son Jason Rourke, builds the frames. He does the fabrication and Brian does the fitting uh, and gives the advice. And Brian's been doing it for, you know, 30 years and he, or 40 years, and he is extremely knowledgeable about the road racing bicycle. And that sort of knowledge is very difficult to find anywhere else. And um, and I like the father-son connection, uh, so I was attracted to that. Uh, and the way Brian fits people to bicycles, uh, I thought that was, you know, that was something which I really wanted to uh, be involved with. So I was, I was drawn to that as well. One of the reasons why people often choose a steel bike is because they like the lugs. This is lugless. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think lugs got a bit too frou-frou, you know, uh, in... Britain uh, in, you know, when the British lightweight scene was at its sort of height. And now, you know, your whether or not you have a lugged bike or a lugless bike is is pretty much an aesthetic decision. It, you know, it used to bear upon how strong the frame would be, but it doesn't anymore. So it's purely aesthetics. And whilst I wanted a bike that looked, at least in part, you know, retro, because I, weigh, I like the way, you know, uh, bikes looked in, particularly Italian bikes looked in the 1970s, I still, I didn't want to, you know, bind it with the lugs. And to a great extent, you look at a lot of hand-built bikes today and the dominant feature on them is the lugs. And I didn't want a bike that was dominated just by that. Talk us through the frame. What do, what do you like about it? Obviously, the, the most obvious characteristic, apart from the colour and the bare metal um, chainstay and seat stay, is this wraparound seat stay, which I think is a beautiful design. It's, and it's, it's, a, it's a Brian Rourke trademark isn't it really it's, it's very much signature. a hallmark exactly it's a brian rock signature and i mean there are i think you know if you look back through the sort of history of british frame builds you'll find lots of others who yeah. did it but brian rock have, have consistently done it and they've carried it through and, and it's a kind of it's a flattened one because sometimes you find them that they'll, they'll have a, a ridge in or a different yes. kind you know yeah. it's variations upon variations yes yeah. quite, yeah. quite yeah. fascinating um, it is. It's very, and and you know, it takes a lot of hand finishing that, and uh, that's something they put, you know, they put a lot of love into. I mean, Jason Rourke, you know, uh, who, as I say, makes the frames. He, I mean, he told me what a what a pain in the ass it was to do it, but they do do it. You know, a difficult um, signature to write. Yes, indeed, indeed. And so the the, the tubes are um, asymmetrical. Is that what they look at things, or, the, or different, certainly different sizes. Are they? Is it, is the top tube is. Uh, Slightly overlized. Slightly overlized. Over, yep. In the same di- direction in both ends. Yeah. 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 So it's not like that weird Columbus Max where it had, was overlised in one direction no, and, no, and exactly, overlized yeah. in the other no, at the so other end. The same, same both ends. Uh, and the tubes are ever so slightly different. So they've got slightly different diameters. And that's Jason Rourke. So he's applying his experience and knowledge to the type of, you know, riding that I propose to do and the way I ride a bike. And he has pick those tubes to be what he thinks are the sort of perfect perfect frame materials for me so rob penn how do you ride a bike <laughs> not particularly well um but i mean so where i ride i ride in the brecon beacons you know i ride in the alps and the pyrenees uh i sit on a bike all day i don't race i'm a bit cack-handed i mash a bit on a bike you know i ride too high a gear you know all the things that you know lousy amateurs do um and so he tries to incorporate some of that into making a bike which will uh which will do me a good deal. Um, I like to descend fast, you know, um, 
I like the mountains uh, and I do like climbing, but, you know, I'm no, no great climber. And so let's move on to the wheels. So the wheels are comprised of um, some very lovely components. The wheels are built to last. You know, they are not the lightest or the sexiest. You know, they're not American lightweight, deep, deep V carbon wheels. The rims are DT Swiss at RR 1.2. You know, they're, they're, they're made of aluminium. They've been around for a long time. They're solid, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, the spokes are Sapim. And uh, Sapim Race on the front and there's Sapim Strong on the back, so it's slightly different. Uh, and the hubs are Royce hubs made by Cliff Poulton in Hampshire. A beautifully finished uh, pieces of engineering, extraordinary care taken in them. And the wheels were built by a guy called Steve Gravy Gravenites, who works out of Fairfax in California, who is... Uh, he's been a sort of legend in the mountain biking wrenching world for a long time. He was a great one of the great mechanics on the sort of uh, mountain biking pro scene in the 90s. And he's been building wheels for 30 years and is, you know, a sort of widely unacclaimed genius. You know, he's a fantastic wheel builder, really, 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 really lovely man as well with a great story. And he built the wheels uh, and it was, you know, it was a real pleasure to watch and hear him do that. For me, that was one of the highlights of the, certainly of the, of the TV show that went with the book, it, they seemed like real characters out there. Those yeah. mountain biking guys. Yeah. And it's it's an interesting story about innovation and and change. At first, I thought you know going to California to see my wheels being made was pretty profligate by any measure. In the first conversation I had with Gravy, he said, "Sure, we can make you up some beautiful wheels, um, but also maybe we could get you riding down Repack uh, with Charlie Kelly and Joe Breeze." And, you know, I mean, I've you know, been reading about these guys for 20 years in mountain bike mags and, you know, I dropped the phone and dug out my passport. And they are, you know, if Repack is the birthplace of the mountain bike in Marin County, um, then Charlie Kelly and Joe Breeze are two of the midwives. And, it, you know, it's, it's a fantastic story, um, not least because almost every innovation in the entire history of the bicycle has been driven by the industry. It's been driven by commercialism and the need and desire to make money out of bicycle products. And this, the mountain bike, which is, to my mind, you know, the greatest innovation in the, in the bicycle since John Kemp Starley came up with the Rover Safety in 1885, it was driven by fun. No one wanted or expected or started out to make money out of it. And two of the people who were involved, two of the midwives, of course, were Gary Fisher and Tom Ritchie, who went on to found global businesses. But at the outset, you know, for most of the 1970s, it was a, you know, it was a garage business. No one was making any money out of it. And so what happened was they took these old clunker, you know, postboy bikes, uh, mainly made by Schwinn, and they began to modify them in order to race them downhill on footpaths for fun. Um, and, of course, the bikes broke. They really weren't designed for this. So, as I say, they began to modify them. And they, through this remarkable sort of period of synergy, they came up with the mountain bike. It should also be added that they knew what they were doing. They were good uh, They were good riders. There were a couple of Cat 1 racers. Joe Breeze was a uh, uh, racing cyclist, and so was Gary Fisher. And they were very good. They really knew what they were doing. Um, but they were, I think they were fortunate in that it was a great sort of synergy between a couple of guys who knew how to fabricate frames, uh, a couple of guys who were permanently interested and intrigued by the bicycle. And so they you know, began to modify them. You know, a couple of their dads had workshops in their garages, so they had access to them. And anyway, this evolved in the, you know, in, in, into the mountain bike. So what are the 
things that came out of that innovation that we now take for granted today? So the way the mountain bike evolved, um, first of all, they took off all non-essential parts and stripped it down to a very, very bare machine. Uh, and then they began to modify. So that we're talking mudguards, fenders, off. Exactly, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and, the, you know, these first, uh, these post-bar bikes, they had coaster brakes. Um, so, that, you know, it's a back pedal brake. And repack was called repack because by the time you got to the bottom, all the grease in the uh, in the back brake had turned to vapor and had uh, disappeared in this trail behind the bike as it came down the mountain. And you had to take the bicycle back to your garage and literally repack it with grease. Um, so that's how the name came around. Um, so they they obviously modified the brakes. They put on the V brakes. The bottom bracket was raised. Uh, cranks were made longer. Uh, gears changed. They're, they put on much stronger brake levers. Uh, they put on knobbly tyres. Um, and there were various other sort of modifications, all of which amounted to index gears, all of which amounted to, you know, the first mountain bike. And, of course, whilst they were racing them downhill on footpaths, what came out was a bicycle which was very, very easy to ride. And so it had a sort of great democracy about it. And in a sense... It was a leap a century back to a mode of transportation which was both affordable and uh, utilitarian and easy. You know, the mountain bike is a very, very easy bike to ride. And that's why I'm sure, oh, I'm sure that's at the heart of why it became so popular so quickly. The mountain bike boom of the 1980s does seem like a distant memory, but it's you know, 20 years ago. Yeah. Mountain biking is its own niche now, but most people buying a bike for city bike you know town bike would have bought a mountain bike in the 80s and 90s they're not buying them so much now it's all it seems to be a road bike boom so the the mountain bike sort of set off on its own technological trailblazing route in the 1990s with these full suspension rigs and you know i mean they're pretty amazing but they obviously they have no practical use in 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 an urban environment whereas i mean my town bike which actually is not here it's you know down the road in uh, abergavenny in my office my town bike is a steel specialised rock hopper from, you know, 93, I think it was. And that uh, I've converted to, you know, commuting use. And that's c- kind of, to me, the sort of ideal commuter. Um, and, it, you know, it's very, very easy to ride. It's very comfortable. It's quite sit up and beg. You know, the brakes are very effective uh, and the gearing works well and it doesn't require too much maintenance, you know, just the old chain clean every now and then. And what's your view on the... Um... I guess the latest craze or fad, if we can dismissively call it that, in the uh, in the <laughs> in the single speed or, or, or fixed wheel bicycles that people with, you know, people who are looking for a, a bike for riding around town are in increasing numbers being sold. Um, you wouldn't ride uh, a, a fixed wheel bicycle in these parts no. unless you were some kind of Superman. Yeah. <laughs> no. What's your take on it for, for the rest of the population? Um, I, I think it's an interesting development. I mean, it means that bicycles are currently fashionable. You know, that may not last, but I think that's indicative of something else, something bigger. It's indicative of the fact that the bicycle is coming back to the centre of public consciousness in, you know, Western society. And for that, you know, that's something that fills me with joy and hope. Um you know, what to make of the fixes. I, you know, I talked to Antonio Colombo, who runs Columbus, the steel tubing dynasty in, in Milan, and also he now runs Cinelli. And he was, you know, very much infatuated, very much in love with the whole sort of fixie scene. And he thought it was a really fantastic development. 
principally because he felt very confident that people who ride sort of fixed wheel bikes have a greater appreciation of what the bicycle does uh, than, you know, a lot of people who ride, say, mountain bikes. Um, you know, they know about the heritage and the history more. So if you built a fixie out of an old, you know, 1980s, you know, Italian frame track bike, then you probably have a greater understanding of what that bicycle is and why it works and where the parts come from and, you know, what they mean than, you know, than, like I say, someone who sort of buys a full suspension mountain bike and hammers it up and down the mountains in South Wales. And and so he was very, he thought that they were a really good development because they brought knowledge back into the, you know, knowledge and appreciation of the bicycle. I, I could agree with that for those people who do, as you say, make it themselves buy an old frame at a cycle jumble or, or on eBay and then fiddle around fixing things up. It's much easier to do that. You don't have to get your front mech yes. setting correct. Um, and that's all right for those kinds of people because it's introducing them into learning about their bike and bicycle fiddling um, in, in, a, in a good and creative way. What I fear is that a lot of people are being sold off-the-shelf fixies with a, an entirely white frame set white deep velocity rims and a, and a kind of pink chain yeah. and some pink bar tape or maybe no bar tape at all because that's that's the ultimate thing isn't that's it no right, bar yeah. no bar tape at all but some plastic rubber grips at the very end of your of your track drops yeah. and they walk out of evans or other bike shops which are available and selling these kinds of bikes with essentially a very inappropriate bicycle that if it doesn't make them feel uncomfortable and potentially in danger on the roads is not going to be ridden for very long because they'll think god this bicycling thing is no fun yeah i think people do get sold pups you know um you know it, it, it's a difficult thing to ride well a, fi a fixed is a difficult thing to ride you know you need experience and you know you need a flat place you know um and and of course you know the, the you know the origins of it are fairly bona fide you know it was couriers who wanted a bicycle which you didn't have to maintain very much you know you could just throw throw under a stairwell at the end of a you know hard day hacking around this you know urban streets delivering parcels and that, so I can understand where that came from and in a sense I quite like the idea of the development of a you know maintenance free bicycle if that if if maintaining a bicycle is seen perceived by people to be a barrier to encouraging people into cycling, then you know low maintenance bicycles are a good thing. But yeah, it's you know I think single speeds rather than fixed. I'd rather I'd rather see more of those sold. And I think you know bike shops should be more um, as long as they as long yeah. as they've got a rear and a front brake because you see yeah. occasionally the single speed bicycle with just the front brake, which is really the suicide machine. Your life hanging by a £1.99 brake cable. Look. <laughs> I agree entirely. God, I mean, I wouldn't ride around town on one, you know. I certainly wouldn't. All right, well, look, let's set aside our, um, our middle-aged men's um, grumpy old prejudices <laughs> and, get, and get back to the, uh, the dream bike, which, well, look, you were talking about Cinelli. And, uh, you know, for me, Cinelli, the, the, the name, I mean, even the C... The initial letter of Cinelli is redolent of a perfect curve of a, of a drop handlebar, yes. isn't it? Yes. I mean... So he was, Chino Cinelli was one of the great innovators in, in, in the bicycle of the second half of the 20th century. And, you know, he almost everything he touched had uh, a flair about it, which was difficult to find. It's difficult to find anywhere else. And he very much regarded the bicycle as an infinite project. You know, prior to him, no one had really 
played around much with the radius of the curve of a, of a handlebar or indeed the sort of drop of it. And he said, well, I think we can do something with this. And he started working in aluminium. He's one of the real pioneers. I mean, I know people are making bicycles from aluminium in the 1910s, but he, you know, he was one of the pioneers. And to begin with, obviously, the pros wouldn't touch it. You know, they were like, I'm not, you know, racing with an aluminium handlebar, which might shear when I'm doing, you know, 80 kilometres an hour down a mountain. And, and it was because he attached his name to it, you know, the, the pro scene had the confidence to to take on these bars. And in a very short period of time, it was totally standard on a pro race bike was a Cinelli bar and stem. So he came up with the A1 stem, which is a very innovative design as well. And, you know, it was copied, mass copied across the entire manufacturing world. If the name Cinelli is redolent of simplicity and, and elegant Italian design, we're moving into the 21st century with these handlebars because these look like something... Um, I'm not sure that I've ever seen a pair of handlebars like these. I mean, these are basically great big flat... Uh, it's like a, it's like, a, like a drinks tray. Like a drinks tray, exactly, <laughs> on the front there, yeah. I mean, I guess that's um, function over form, perhaps? Uh, yeah, so obviously, you know, with, with uh, metal, you know, with aluminium or steel, it, ha- it has to be round. So the bar has to be round. Of course, with carbon, you can start mucking around with that because you can change the shape of it and have it strong, you know. So the integrity of, you know, the roll bar is you know is 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 no longer no longer has to be respected so you have a sort of what is a flat place here and if you suffer i mean i suffer very badly in the hands in cycling you know i have sort of carpal tunnel syndrome or whatever you whatever name it goes by it goes with different names to different people but i ha- you know i get very sore hands if i ride all day and here you have something which is one approach to the problem so you can rest your palms flat on the bar here and you get quite a lot of your hand covered, and it is it is incredibly comfortable. And I think, yeah, you know, Cinelli was the the C is associated with flair, but it's also associated very heavily with innovation. And and this is an innovative one of their innovative products. And you like it? Uh yeah, I really do like it. Yeah, I love it. Um, and I wasn't convinced to, to begin with, you know. And uh, you know, I like probably aesthetically, I probably prefer the traditional bar, but this is comfort over style well let's just rattle through quickly the uh, the other contact points i don't know it's not really worth talking about the uh, the uh, the brook saddle because that's a total no-brainer isn't it uh, yeah well it, I mean, it was for me it was for me um and it, you know it looked you know brian rort was you know he raced on one of these for sort of 20 years it's a brooks team professional and he was pretty appalled that i wanted to put a brooks saddle on a bicycle like this because of the aesthetic value you know he thought it should have you know, one of those sort of... Like a physic, like yeah. a really thin it's, wafer. Or exactly, something. exactly. A razor blade one that looks like the sort of an arrow, the point of an arrowhead or something. You know. And it, 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 you know, so he was pretty upset when I said, this is what I'm going for. But for me, it was a no-brainer. You know, I mean, I went around the world on a B-17. You know, the B-17 was uh, first manufactured in, I think, 1896 or something. It's been in continuous production ever since. You know, you have to ask, they must be getting something right. And this is based on that. The team pressure is based directly on the B17. And it is a remarkably comfortable saddle, and I swear by it. So. Did you get the titanium rails? Did they knock you up one with the titanium uh, rails just to shave a few uh, no. grams off? No, I didn't get the titanium rails. It's not about weight. <laughs> it's about the weight of the rider. It's not about the weight of the bike. The number right? of flapjacks in the uh, yeah. back pocket. Yeah, right? exactly. Okay. Yeah. And so then, then let's go down to the pedals, which will lead us to the uh, to the drive chain. Yeah. So the pedals are look. You know, they're very standard. They're look Kio. You know, again, another company that has a great heritage in the bicycle. 
Um, and, nothing... and, and skiing world. <laughs> and the skiing world, yeah. And there's really nothing particularly special about them. Um, that, that's, that, I'm sensing that that is a choice that you'd already made through yes. happenstance rather yeah. than something that you were willing to reconsider. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there, I don't think there's a chapter on no, the pedals, not, is there? No, there's not, there's not. And, and in, in a sense, so my chapters are addressing the components of the bike, but they're also looking at the history of the bike. And really, you know, the innovation was not the pedals, the innovation was the cranks and the pedals. You know, the cranks are the, are the important thing. You know, outside the bicycle world, the cranks have applications everywhere and you know just as they do on the bicycle they're totally fundamental so in a sense it's about the cranks not right. about the tell um, us about the cranks so the cranks are so i got the group set from campag um and it's campagnolo record and you know it's a classic midlife crisis purchase as my friends continue to tell me is that 11 um, speed or 10 it's 11 speed it's the first time i've owned a record group set um you know, Tullio Campagnolo, the man who set up the company, was, you know, along with Chino Cinelli, one of the greats of uh, Italian uh, bicycle componentry manufacturing. He innovated all of the time. He gave us the quick release. Uh, and he he sort of, you know, rather like Cinelli himself, regarded the bicycle as an infinite project. He thought there was nothing on it that couldn't be adapted, innovated, changed in some way. And he was a, a really, you know, a sort of a great man, a great man of Italian society as well. And he, you know, he was the first person to come up with the group set. And it does lend a bicycle a sort of certain, you know, the sort of homogenization of the drive chain gives it a sort of simplicity and an elegance, which I think is probably quite important. So when I first started the project, I thought I wasn't going to have a group set. You know, thought you'd go to TA and get your chain rings exactly, and cranks. Exactly. Uh, and that I'd, you know, you know, break it up and get bits and pieces from different people. And, and Brian Walk, it was one thing that Brian Walk sort of slightly pleaded with me about. He said, I think, you know, you get so much more aesthetic value out of a bicycle that does have a group set. You know, a part of me sort of rebels against that because I don't like sort of proprietary ownership of componentry in the bicycle industry. But at the same time, you know, I've only ever... As I say, bought record once, so I thought I'd buy the lot. And let's talk about the chain. There's a great chapter on, on, on the chain. It's one of the fascinating stories of, of the bicycle. And it's one of the, thing, one of the things that you don't realise how much thought had to go into coming up with the chain, which made everything possible, made rear wheel drive possible, which made equalising the size of the wheels possible. And, 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 and the chain is actually a remarkably complex and and wonderful device isn't it yes so the the you know the search for a good chain had been going on for quite a long time during the 19th century you know and really without a good chain that meant you couldn't have a rear rear wheel drive bicycle and eventually this chap called Hans Reynolds the company's still in business Reynolds chains still making chains he came up with the bush and roller chain which is very simple but a very important innovation in the chain, in chain technology. Uh, and, it, you know, very simply, it just means you've got rollers which sit over the tops of the bushes, which means that the chain wears far less quickly or far more slowly uh, than a, a, a conventional chain. And the, the bicycle manufacturers in Coventry, Hans, Ren Hans Reynolds set up in business in Manchester. And the bicycle manufacturers in Coventry at the time, they spotted this and they were like, right, genius, we're on to something and immediately, Starley, John Kemp Starley, who was the, the person who came up with the Rover Safety, he, uh, as I say, identified this as a major breakthrough. 
Uh, and if you think at where the chain is today, the part that the chain plays in the mechanisation of the planet, in, in a sense you can draw that back and thank the bicycle because the bicycle recognised the application that it had in the industry first. And are there any other insights into the non-bicycling application of bicycle technology that you came across? Um, so, well, one of the things is, is ball bearings. So ball bearings is a very good story. So, again, the bicycle industry was the first industry to make widespread use of ball bearings. And they'd been known about, the idea of them had been around for a while. Galileo wrote about ball bearings a sort of century before the bicycle got hold of them. Leonardo da Vinci wrote about them a century before that. You know, there are wooden ball bearings, though you sort of question the use of those, which have been found in Roman galleys dating back to the time of Christ. So the idea of ball bearings, you know, reducing friction, um, had been around for a very, very long time. But nobody had been able to create a ball bearing which didn't grind to powder in a very, very short period of time. So the application was almost nil. And the, and the ball bearing made a very interesting introduction into the history of the bicycle. So in 1869, the world's first ever bicycle road race took place, and it was called Paris-Rouen. And um, several hundred cyclists set off from Paris um, on an October day in 1869, uh, 125 kilometres, riding 125 kilometres to the northwest to Rouen, city of Rouen. And this is before, you know, Paris-Brest-Paris, Liège-Bastogne-Liège, before the Tour, etc., etc., and that race was won by a man called James Moore, who was an Englishman who lived in Paris. He was known as L'Anglais Volant over there and known over here as the Flying Frenchie. Um, and the Flying Frenchie won the race. And he won the race because he was riding the only bicycle that day that had ball bearings in the pedal axle. And that gave him a huge technological advantage. And he played it in a very different way, interestingly. He said that it was all about his machismo. He is reputed to have said before the race, I will get there first or they will find my body in the road, which is, of course, a sentiment which has been uh, the calling card of road cycle racing ever since. So here it is. That's, uh, that's pretty much rounded it off. And um, I'm glad to see you've got a couple of little marks on it like that. How do you feel about having built your perfect bicycle and then you get your first scratch oh god it's horrendous and my sort of wife you know continually tells me to get over it you see the tape's gone a bit here i've got a couple of scratches on the rear mech a bit of the paint has chipped you know from sort of gravel coming off the road i was out with a bunch of cyclists the other day and it was a windy day quite like this not quite as windy as this but it was a windy day as well and i spent all day sort of every time we stopped saying to people don't lean your bike against that it'll get blown over in the wind don't lean your bike up lay it down on the floor uh, and then of course at one point i lent my bike up against the lamppost and the damn thing got blown over so there's a couple more scratches on it but you do have to get over it my wife is right <laughs> it's a bicycle and you'll be riding this bike i assume on an inaugural ride from Cardigan to Hay on Wye. Yes, that's right. So Cardigan to Hay on Wye, beach to border. We're going to do the inaugural ride uh, at the end of May, beginning of June. And it's about it's about a bike ride. Um, it's about slow cycling that. It's about picnics by the river. Um, it's about um, the company of friends. Um, and it's about enjoying the glorious Welsh countryside. 
Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. So that's open to people to come along and ride with you, is it? Absolutely. Anyone who wants to come, you know, this is, you know, uh, and we've got a sort of small group building slowly um, and it's any, anybody who wants to come. And we're going to stay at little B&Bs and a couple of farms along the way and really celebrate the bicycle. It's a kind of way people used to ride, as you know, you know, uh, sort of post-war, riding as sort of random groups, uh, not particularly straining yourself. It's not, you know, a cyclist sportive. You know, it's about choosing distances which are within your capacity and really enjoying the riding. And we've chosen this particular route because, one, the countryside is fabulous, but, two, it's very lightly trafficked, the roads out that way. So you feel very comfortable riding. And so there'll be a little bit of past storming and uh, the occasional drum up. (laughs) Are you going to be delving deep into the lexicon of of the 1950s for coming up with these sort of terms and reintroducing them, reinfusing them into the the cycling language of today? Yeah, uh, yeah, you might have to lead the way, but wherever you go with it, I'll follow Jack, yeah. <laughs> and anyone who who comes along and completes the ride will be rewarded by arriving at the Hay Literary Festival where you are going to be talking about your book. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I've got to do a talk at the Hay Literary Festival. In fact, they've got quite a good day of cycling. So I'm giving a talk on Friday the 3rd of June and Mark Beaumont's coming to give a talk and David Miller is coming to give a talk as well. So it's quite a nice you know, cross-section of cyclists. Yeah. In this special extended podcast edition of this week's Bike Show, I was in conversation with Rob Penn, author of It's All About the Bike, which is out now in the UK and the United States in paperback, as well as having been translated into six languages. So no excuse for not picking up a copy. It's an excellent read. And you'll be able to catch Rob, as he said, at the Hay Literary Festival on the 3rd of June and join him in his Beach to Borders bike ride, which I think begins on Tuesday, three days before Friday the 3rd of June. Um, That's Tuesday next week. He will also be appearing at uh, various other events over the summer, including the Bristol Bicycle Film Festival and the bespoke handmade bicycle fest also down there in Bristol in the West Country. That's it from me. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sticking with this extended edition and I hope you enjoyed it. Normal half-hour service will be resumed next week. Until then, enjoy the bank holiday weekend. Bye. Tune in to Resonance FM for... for an oral... Oh God, I can't say this word. Do your ears need exercising? Tune in to Resonance 104.4 FM for an oral workout or or on the web on resonancefm.com. No, it's uh, it's the perfect word for it. And what was it for an oral? Uh, Ow, ow, ow. Ow, 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 ow.